We could probably spend months, maybe even years doing that, but more than likely we'd get bogged down. And I want to make sure that when we finish this series in Romans, we don't leave thinking, oh, Romans is drudgery. So here's how we're going to do that. I want us to remember two things over this series, this Roman Road construction series. I want us to remember first this. For so many people and for so many churches and denominations, Romans is a a theological treatise. It's the hallmark explanation of the Christian faith. And when they open the book, they come to it with that mentality. It's true. It's true. But for our circumstances, for our case, I want us to remember something different. I want us to remember that this this book is a letter. It's a letter written by a man to a church. To a church that he hadn't even visited yet. And yet, it's a letter with someone who has an obvious pastoral heart. You can see that in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1. You can follow along or you can just listen. Paul says, Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because of your faith in Him and it's being talked about over all the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about His Son. Verse 10, one of the things I always pray for, Paul says, is the opportunity, God willing to come and at last see you. For I long to visit you so that I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith. But I also want to be encouraged by yours. Verse 13, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people both in the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome and to preach the good news. Tell me, does does that sound like a, a professor who stands in the front of a classroom about ready to pontificate and exegete this theological treatise? It doesn't to me. It sounds like someone who's got a pastoral heart. Oh, know how much I pray for you. Day and night, know how much I want to come and visit you. I want to come and be a a blessing to you. I want to come and, and, and give you time for growth. But I want you to do the same for me. It's going to go both ways. It's a pastoral heart. And I think we need to remember that as we go through this book. This book of Romans is is not an essay. It's, It's not a pamphlet. It's not a theological treatise. It's a letter from a guy who cares deeply about a group of people he hasn't even met yet. That's the first thing I think we need to remember. Now, the second thing I think we need to remember is that Romans... As we are studying the key themes over these next eight weeks, it can all be boiled down simply to the fact that Paul is saying everything's about Jesus Christ. 
as we're digging through themes of sin and sanctification and, and God's sovereignty and, and service. For Paul, it boils back down to Jesus Christ, but not just his life story. It boils down to Jesus Christ and good news. The good news that Jesus is. He has been. He has fulfilled and will yet to bring. For Paul, good news and Jesus go hand in hand. I mean, just look at how he begins his letter. Chapter 1, verse 1 and following. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago in his prophets and the holy scriptures. And the good news is about his son. It's about Jesus Christ. Verse 6, you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Good news. Jesus Christ, they, they go hand in hand for Paul. Now, Paul finishes his introductory thoughts in verses 16 and 17. I'll start in 15 and go through the other two. Paul says, So I'm eager to come to you in Rome too and preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. There's a couple of really interesting things at play here, and Paul is masterfully weaving them through, especially these last two verses. These things provide us a little bit of background for his intro as as well as the rest of the book. So here's a question. Where was this letter that Paul wrote? Where was it going? To what church was it going? Where was the church located? Okay, it's not a a trick question. Where was it located? Rome, right? Good. Rome, the city of Rome. A city which happened to be the center place of the most powerful empire of the world. This was the hub in that culture, in, that, in, the, in the world. And not only was it the hub of everything, commerce and culture and everything else, it was the place where Caesar Augustus lived. The man who was in charge of this, this empire. The man whose birthday was proclaimed as good news. And who's, who was called a son of God. Caesar Augustus, his birthday was declared as good news, and he was called a son of God. It makes you reread verses 2 through 4 a little bit differently, doesn't it? When Paul says, God promised this good news. This good news is about his son. It's about Jesus. Those are bold statements for Paul. Especially making them in writing to a city that, uh, where this guy lives. It's no wonder he says what he does in verse 16. I am not ashamed of this good news. On a side note, I wonder if Paul was thinking about what King David wrote in 
Psalm 119 when he chose that not ashamed lingo. Psalm 119 verse 46 says, I will speak to kings about your loss and I will not be ashamed. Recap to make sure we're on the, on the same page. What we're looking at doing this in the study of Romans, we're remembering that this was a letter written to a, written to a church that the man writing hadn't even visited yet. And we're remembering that this letter is about Jesus. And more specifically, the good news that Jesus is. Paul lays this out just beautifully, again in verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. It's accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. I've read those verses a couple times already. I truly believe that these two verses summarize what Paul is going to talk about the next 15 and a half chapters in this letter. The good news about Christ. And I want to tell you today that over the next eight weeks, I'm going to keep coming back to these two verses. And we're going to ask, how do these key themes in Romans tie in to what Paul said about Christ and the good news in verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1? How are these sections about the good news Paul declared at the beginning of his letter. And knowing that we're going to spend time coming back to this, I think it's, it's good for us to really understand what Paul means when he's talking about good news, when he's talking about gospel, as a lot of your translations will say. It involves several different components to it. The first one is that for Paul, good news is very specifically about Jesus Christ. That, that's a given. Paul is sold out to who Jesus is. He recognizes Jesus' humanity. Verse 3, the good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. Paul says this Jesus guy has an earthly lineage, but he also has a heavenly lineage. Continues in verse 4, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, shown to be the Son of God. This was a serious statement, a claim that dated back centuries upon centuries to the glory days of Israel's history when prophecy first began predicting that someone would come that would be called God's Son. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, it reads, I will be his father and he will be my son. God, in that context, was speaking to David, talking about the line, the heir that God would bring to David's family tree. Now, that must have made an impact on David, because as he was writing the Psalms, in his second Psalm, he wrote this, verse 7 and 8. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You are my son. It says. So for centuries upon centuries, the Hebrew people had taken verses like those two and several others, knowing that God's Son was going to come. They didn't know what He'd look like or when He'd come or, or how it would all unfold, but Paul is saying it's happened. 
And it's good news. It's here. It's Jesus. Claiming to be God's son, claiming to be the the chosen one, was something that had taken place by many people before Jesus. And it's actually taken place after Jesus came. I found a short list of 74 names of people who have claimed to be uh, the second coming of Christ, or God's son, or the Messiah, since Jesus came. 74 people. So for, for Paul to say this is God's son, even though others had done it before and others had done it after, Paul realized it was going to take uh, a bit of faith to believe that. And that was Paul's second component of this good news. First it involved faith, or excuse me, first it involved Jesus, and then it involved faith. Did you notice as we read through these first 17 verses how many times Paul mentioned faith? It was mentioned in verse 5. Through Christ, God has given the privilege, us the privilege and authority of the apostles to tell the Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe, so they will have faith and bring glory to his name. He does it again in verse 8. Let me first say I thank God through Christ Jesus for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. He does it a couple times in verse 16. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. This is accomplished from start to finish through faith. Through faith, the righteous person has life. Verse 17, the Greek actually reads, God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. It's that double emphasis. So what is faith to Paul? What is, where does it come from? Faith means belief. For the Apostle Paul, the Greek word is pistis. It looks like this. And it means to be persuaded, to come to trust. And the biblical use of this word, of pistis, is always a gift from God. Faith is always something that God gives. It's not something that we work hard to conjure up within within ourselves. It's something God says, here, I'm giving you this faith. Now, the same word in, in secular antiquity, in Jesus' time, it meant a warranty or a guarantee. So in Scripture, when pistis is used, the way Paul is using it here, faith could very well be said to be God's warranty. God's guarantee that the revelation He inbirthed in Christ is going to come to pass as He wants it done. Simply said, for Paul, faith is about the good news of Jesus. And that faith is given to us persuasively by God as a gift. Total acceptance, absolute trust, accomplished, given only by God. What is this faith in? According to verses 16 and 17, this faith is the fact that through Jesus, salvation can occur and righteousness is possible. Salvation and righteousness are are the two final ideas that really summarize Paul's picture of what he's trying to paint in verse 16 and 17 of what the good news is. Let's look first at salvation. Verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of of the gospel, of the good news. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. 
We Western Protestants, we've done a disservice to this idea of salvation. We've made it way more individualistic and personal than Paul and, and other writers of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures ever meant it to be. Oftentimes we've reduced it down to praying a prayer that then guarantees we spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Now, did salvation mean that for Paul? We can assume it did. But we can also assume that it meant the same thing that he wrote it as, as the rest of the Old Testament writers meant it as. For them, when they talk about salvation, they're talking about God restoring things. God restoring creation. God restoring people. God restoring everything back to how they were originally meant to be. God had created the the world one way. But due to sin, the world was no longer functioning in that way. Creation needed saving as much as people did. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, verses 19 and 22. For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who His children are. Because against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. We know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Creation is awaiting God's salvation also. And the salvation, Paul says, comes through Jesus. N.T. Wright, a modern day bishop of a church of England, writes The good news message about Jesus is how God has put the world to rights, and how God will put you and I to rights as well. It's a holistic view of salvation. My guess is, as Paul used that word, he was thinking of some of the Old Testament scriptures that also use that word. Psalm 85, 7 and 9. Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, so our land will be filled with his glory. Isaiah 51, 5 and 8. My mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. All the lands will look to me and wait in hope for my powerful arm. My salvation will continue from generation to generation. This good news message is about how God has put the world to right, as well as how God has put us to right. This past week, Abby and I were talking to our sons about the creation story, and in the conversation, something along these lines was said. You know, since Jesus was there, and since he was active in creation, do you think he was pretty bummed to watch this good creation go downhill so quickly? That is a fair question. As I heard that, I started thinking, I wonder if as he was creating, Jesus was thinking about the day he would join his creation and bring salvation to all of it. For Paul, salvation means God putting things back to how they were intentionally, originally, and meant to be. If salvation ties into God making things right with how they were meant to be, it's an easy transition into Paul's next statement about righteousness. Verse 17. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. It's accomplished from start to finish by faith, 
And as the Scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Righteousness. Rightness with God. God's righteousness is revealed. This is a righteousness that Paul is saying we can live into. It's a righteousness that quite simply means the ability to be in correct relationship and in right relationship with God. As was the case with faith, Paul is emphasizing the fact that this is not something we earn, it's something that's given to us. God's righteousness is a gift. How many of you are reading from the King James translation? I don't, you don't have to be afraid. Anybody? King James Version? Just one? Wow. Well, Marlene, in your translation, it says, and the just shall live by faith. Maybe that might be how some of you memorize that. That's Habakkuk 2.4. I was looking at the, the wording there, the just shall live by faith and, and, and the righteous shall live by faith. It turns out those words both come from the original Greek root word. And it means to have a new relationship with God. Something made new. What Paul is demonstrating in verses 16 and 17 is that the whole work of Jesus has been to enable people to enter this new relationship, this precious relationship with God. Jesus has made people right. He's made them just in His sight. He's made that possible. And that is good news. Amen? We've covered a lot of ground this morning. Maybe we're thinking, does it, does it all tie together? Wow, we've been here, we've been there, we've been a little bit of everywhere. What do we do with all this? I started off telling you that we need to remember two things. That this is a letter, and that this is about Jesus. So what is good news then? It comes back to the fact that Jesus enables us to be in right relationship with God. And here's what I think we need to take home. The ideas of faith, the ideas of salvation, the idea of righteousness, all three of these are acts of God. They're initiated by God. They're given by God, accomplished only through Jesus Christ. It's about God's work. Work that's already been done. Work that's been accomplished. It's completed. Doesn't that sound good? For you to have faith, you don't have to try harder to believe more. God gives it to you. For you to become right with God, you don't need to keep this sin tally sheet in your purse. God gives you rightness or righteousness. And then for salvation... It's a restoration of all things that God originally created them to be in relationship with Him. Can we restore things to that? No. God can. God does it. So God gives. God does. God made. And it's all through Jesus Christ. That is good news. We are going to be wrestling through some deeper things in this Roman Road Construction Series. Over the coming weeks, we're going to look at sin. We're going to look at salvation. We're going to look at sanctification. We're going to look at service. We're going to look at God's sovereignty. And there may be times where we start thinking, wow, I need to do better. 
I need to understand more. I need to articulate this in a way that others can, can understand. I need to do that. What I want to leave you with today is God has already done it. He's done that work. And that is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, even in the first 17 verses, I know that I have felt uh, an overwhelmed of, wow, there is a ton in here. So Lord, this morning, I, I personally am thankful for the reminder that as things get confusing, as they seem heavy, I can remember, Lord, that this is just about Jesus Christ and the work He's already done. And I can remember the fact that I don't have to do more work to be right with God. I don't have to do more work to bring others to God. I don't have to feel a burden because, God, You have already done it. And You've done it in Jesus Christ. I thank You for that. Lord, I pray that any, any weight we may feel as we, as we read Romans this week, I pray that you would lift that and remind us of your love for us. God, we're looking forward to what you teach us. We're looking forward to how we learn it together. We trust that you will do a work in us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.